Today on The Black Goat, we talk about teaching research methods and statistics to undergraduates. What should we be covering, when, and how? And a letter from a second-year PhD student about mentoring an undergraduate who is writing their first paper. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And it's the end of the term for, for me. Um, uh, I'm on quarters. Uh, I know the semester people listening are like, what, that was months ago. Uh, you guys are, Samin, you're on quarters, right? Yep. Alexa, are you on quarters or semesters? Semesters. I'm actually almost done teaching a summer class already. I'm way ahead of you, Sanjay. I'm I'm just like literally breathing the sigh of relief. Oh, I'm done. We'll but, get our revenge you know. in September. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But I so I taught, uh, and we're actually we're going to be talking, I guess, about teaching research methods. I taught research methods for the first time this term. Um, but I was thinking to the first time I taught, I think this was the first time I taught anything at the U of O. Uh, my my intro to psych class and uh, my now wife, uh, uh, Kristen actually came to one of my classes like this was one of the first times I taught whoa you let her come to your class before you were married like she was your girlfriend at the time I know I know and and she still married me so I must have not fucked it up too badly I know back in those days I was a big ummer I've I've somewhat reduced that in my teaching but I remember like my teaching evals like consistently it was like he says um way too much but it was wow. funny because Kristen, she she told me she was going to come. She was just kind of curious to see me teach. This was like a large lecture. She sat in the back. I, I'm not even sure that I saw her. But it was it was eye-opening to me how much stuff went on in the back of the room that I had no idea of. Because afterwards, like, we, I think we had lunch after or something. And I was like, so what would you think? And I was expecting her to talk about, like, what I did in the lecture. And she's like you know, telling me, like, the first thing that happened when she sat down was some student turns to her and goes, uh, excuse me, do you have a pencil? Because I didn't bring anything to write with today. <laughs> and then, like, and students were checking their phones and they were mm-hmm. talking. And I think this was back when newspapers in print still existed on campus. And so people were reading the student yeah. newspaper and stuff. And, and I was just like, I have no fucking clue what goes on in my classroom when I'm talking. I had yeah. a couple that would make out all the time when I would teach. <laughs> it was so <laughs> awkward. Right. Yeah. That was the worst. Did you... Did you try to address that? I would be too embarrassed to address that. I don't think I did. I don't remember. It wasn't like it was 2006. It was a long time ago. Back when it was okay to make out in your classes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, but I remember the newspaper thing. I remember people having newspapers in class. Really? Yeah. That was like yeah. a thing. I yeah. I don't think I've seen that. Um, oh, it's, it's have weird. you ever had anyone come to your class, Alexa? Yeah. So actually, I was thinking of two, and then you reminded me. As I was just like shocked that you would let your girlfriend come to your class, I realized that I let somebody I was I was dating come to my class, and he also sat at the back. <laughs> it was a big lecture class, and and told me about how like the students in my class were not paying attention to me. So that was like a little unsatisfying. Um, but I've had my parents come to my class, which is kind of nice because I don't know. It's kind of nice to like have your family see what your life is like. Maybe it sort of goes back to like the letter that we read. Um, last episode where sometimes it's like hard for your parents to really like imagine your your life and stuff Um, and we have like take your kids to work day but there's no like take your parents to work day Um, so they did that but then recently um, somebody who I just became friends with 
uh, came to my seminar class. And I thought it was like, I didn't even think anything of it when I invited this person to come. Like I was just like, uh, she was like looking for classes to go to at the university for fun. And I was like, well, I'm teaching a class. So you could come to that. And then like, as it approached, I was like, what did I agree to? Like, why did I allow this person to come <laughs> to my seminar class? class is definitely really different. I think that's what it was like. I knew that, and she she came and she didn't, like, really even participate. She just sort of observed. So it's not like she interrupted the class in any, like, explicit way, but, like, the knowledge that she was there really, like, totally affected my interactions with the class. Um, and I think that's because um, I get, like, really informal in my seminar classes, and I'm not always thinking about like are they really like learning useful information right now like it's a lot of like especially in the summer because it's every day for it ends up being an hour and 35 minutes um and so we just have to talk for that much time five days a week and I just can't I can't do it where they're actually learning stuff the entire time (laughs) um so like while she was there we talked about like our favorite flavors of Gatorade for like three minutes and the whole time I was like oh my (laughs) god she's such a terrible teacher (laughs) yeah I can't imagine having friends come to a seminar that would totally change it like I've I so more recently I had some friends come to it was, was also an intro to psych lecture and and so you know, and so I, I and, but by this point, it was, this was like a year or two ago. And so it was, it, you know, I had all my routines down and I, I think I've gotten a little better at teaching, but I, I sort of leaned into it where I had like a, a running example that I was going to use anyway, but I made their names and I put their pictures up and I don't think the class even realized that these were like real people that were in the room. Like it was just like, so imagine, you know, Brooke and Lisa walk into a thing and do a thing. And like, so they got a kick out of that, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think in a seminar, even if someone was just sitting there, if it was like a friend of mine, I would totally be thinking, yeah, like, what are they going to think of me? Yeah. And, and also this person was German, which I think is relevant because like my, my, my idea of what German education is like, is like not what my seminar class is like. <laughs> and so I was like, she's, and she did admit at the end, she was like, she was very like complimentary and like, oh, you know, you have like a good rapport with your students and it's like I really think the style is like effective in some ways but she was like also like the whole time I was sitting there and I was like but when does the fun stuff stop and she starts like teaching them things <laughs> <laughs> I was like I knew you were gonna think that you can never come back oh. I've never had somebody I was dating sit in on a class but one guy I dated did look me up on rate my professor and then proceeded to like lecture me about how I can improve my ratings and improve my teaching and I was like Oh, in retrospect, that should have been a red flag. <laughs> Wait, in, in retrospect, that wasn't a red flag? I don't know. I think I didn't. Yeah, I think I was like slightly annoyed, but I don't think I took it as seriously as I probably should have. I get like it mad is... when my friends look at my website. I'm like, that's <laughs> private. You can't, look <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can't look at what I do for a living and put out there to the world. It is weird if like uh... somebody who I don't, who I know from non-professional stuff starts following me on Twitter. I'm like, Oh, well, first you're going to be super bored, but also, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, my my mom got a Twitter account. Oh, no. And I only know this because I saw her name and, and then I asked her about it. And I don't think she ever checks it because she like she followed me. And I remember when she first got on Facebook and this was like early in the days. I was like, oh, that's weird. And then it kind of became normal to have family members on Facebook. But I just completely forget that. And I'm much more I'm often more like profane on Twitter and, and just 
different on Twitter, but also mm-hmm. like it's a lot nerdier because I'm almost all talking about research where Facebook, I post a lot more well, personal Well, I don't so understand kind of about 40% of your tweets, so my guess is your mom doesn't <laughs> understand at least that many. No, nobody understands. <laughs> I don't understand most of them. I feel like I want to make like a shadow Twitter account that's just like, can someone please explain Sanjay's tweet to me? <laughs> I... So I, I, Kristen said this recently about our, our episode titles. Our listeners may not know this, that I, I think I usually, I almost always end up writing the episode titles just because I'm, I'm usually like our workflow is like Alexa does the editing. She posts uh, a file and then I kind of post it to our, our podcast host and, and write the show notes. And, and so I come up with the, but she, Kristen said to me recently, I think it was our last episode, mm-hmm. um, uh, she saw the title and she's like, are you the one that comes up with the title? And I was like, yeah, most of the time. And she's like, yeah, they're very your sense of humor. And I, I feel like we, we occasionally like, I think there was one time not too long ago where there was something mildly risque that I like ran past you guys to make sure I wasn't going to cross any lines or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I just, I come up with the episode titles because they're funny to me. And <laughs> I think I, think I always understand, I always think I understand the episode titles. Whether I actually understand them is a different question. I can, Yeah, the, I feel like I've had the feeling that I didn't understand them before. And I'm not sure if I ever followed through to figure, <laughs> like not all of them, but there's like one or two where I was like, mm, I think there's a joke there that I'm missing. Yeah, a lot of times they're not that deep. It's just like a song lyric or something. Like our last one, uh, This Is How You Do It, uh, um, is a yeah. like a 90s New Jack Swing song. Uh, and I, it's just okay. like Everybody I'm old enough that, that oh, well, guys... everyone our age knows that. I don't know if, uh, um, I don't know if the youngsters know what it is. But I also, I feel like I, that was like, that's such a useful title. I hope I didn't like wasted on the like I, you sort of like you want to save that for when you can't come up with anything else because it's like you could like that could be this this right, week's right, right, right. it could right. be like this is how you do it part two yeah. and, you know do you guys remember that one time when we were hanging out and i was like what does circle jerk mean you know what i'm gonna google what circle jerk means <laughs> you guys were like no <laughs> Uh, I you see th- this is this is why I, I need to run stuff by you guys uh because I'm I'm like I just live in a world where it's like, oh yeah, that, those words would just come out of my mouth without me even sort of thinking twice, and I'd be like, oh, that might be inappropriate in this context. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, but I, when I run things by you guys, I, I feel that's a good reminder that I might need to explain why I'm <laughs> running it by you. I'll be like, I'm going to call this episode like you know, psychology's circle jerk, and Samin would be like, yeah, that sounds fun. What does that mean, yeah. by the way? I always pretend that I don't heavily edit the episodes, but really, like 90% of the episodes are gone, and it's just Sanjay talking about circle jerks. <laughs> I should start listening. Um, Okay. We should create so, like a like a dark web version of the podcast that's like all the cut stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the stuff we edit out. There's really not that no, much. We, really it's isn't. occasionally a little bit, but there's for our listeners. There's really as far as I know. There's I, two times I, I can think Alexa of that we've be, edited something out. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think. Usually, usually we just roll with it and face the fallout. Well, besides heavy but. breathing and coughs and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> those can also go heavy in the breathing. dark web version. <laughs> I, I, well, we've mentioned this before. There are some people that would like specifically want to download just those parts, but uh, we're not. Let's, we're let's not, not going to pretend those people makes, don't exist. It makes Samin very uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, let's do our letter. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, 
All right, the letter begins, Hi, Alexa, Sanjay, and Samin. I like that they listed us in order of importance at the beginning of the letter. Um, I'm an upcoming second-year PhD student, and I feel like I'm in a bit of a bind. Here's my dilemma in a nutshell. I've gotten involved on a paper that seems to be stuck in a bit of a time loop. This project emerged from a data set for my lab that an undergraduate student was interested in a few months before I got to grad school. The student did much of the legwork in terms of coding, and once I arrived at grad school, I used the data set to run some analyses for my first year milestone project. Since then, the student, my advisor, and I have joined forces to look at some other things in the data set, and I've been working on a manuscript for nearly 10 months now. To make things a little trickier, I offered to do a careful review of the introduction of the latest version since my advisor is a bit swamped and I'm more free now that it's the summer. And I found that the introduction is quite unclear, poorly structured, doesn't really sound like an academic paper, and some entire sentences were plagiarized. How would you all recommend going about giving feedback to the student in a gentle way while also moving this paper along more efficiently, ensuring the final manuscript is of the caliber it needs to be and that authorship is given fairly? And how might one manage being a grad student on the younger side of the program who is also very much learning while also somewhat mentoring an undergraduate student? Sincerely, Anonymous. Um, so I thought that there were a couple of interesting things about this letter. Um, one is this question of how to um, be in some capacity a mentor while feeling like you already like you don't really know what's going on yet. Um, and I think you can be like at that, you can feel like that at various stages in your career, right? Like I felt like that when I first started as a professor and had graduate students and I was like, I don't know any more than you do, but I'm like supposed to be, I, like I just was a grad student and now I'm supposed to be telling you how to be a graduate student. And um, so I think that's an interesting question. And also just this, um, I'm curious what you, that what the two of you do when you want to like speed a paper along, but you're not the first author or whether you even do that and or do you just like let the pace be up to the well, I think, first author? I think one of the reasons this paper might've lingered is it doesn't sound like they've decided who's first author. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that can make it like fall through the cracks or it makes it so that nobody feels like they can really tell other people, okay, you know, if I don't hear from you by next month, I'm gonna move forward and assume this part's good enough or whatever. Right. So I think the first step to me would be to have a conversation with all involved and discuss, okay, who, let's decide an authorship order for now so that we mm -hmm. know how much to invest. And then we can always revisit it if somebody turns out to have a lot more time or a lot less time or have contributed more or less. But I think it's good to have the assumed authorship order so that people can decide if they're doing if they're doing too much, you know, so that I could like, if I know I'm not going to be first author, maybe I won't put in as much work or, and also so that someone's responsible for making sure it's moving along. And usually that would be the first author because they have the most vested in it. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be good from the beginning. And certainly with undergrad projects, I would always, I mean, with all projects, I think people should talk about authorship order from the very, very beginning, even before mm -hmm. any writing gets done. Um, because I think everyone, is should be is entitled to know what the credit they're likely to get right and so and how much to invest right yeah mm -hmm. but especially with undergrad projects i think it's important because under like undergrads might not have any idea what would be reasonable and i think a lot of the time it's not really reasonable to expect an undergrad to shepherd a paper all the way through and to be the lead right. person so most of the time for me with undergrads we, i start off saying the assumption is that you're not going to be first author um, which means that other people need to be very involved from the beginning because they need to earn, you know, whoever's going to be first author needs to earn it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important 
it's yeah i mean there might there are undergrads who are capable of it so i wouldn't always have that rule but it sounds like in this case it would have been a good rule for once the grad student came onto it to have that discussion and probably for the grad student to be the one to take the lead um but it's right, not too late to have that conversation now i think because then you would feel more ownership and more of a authority to tell people okay it's you know can you look at it in the next three weeks or whatever and then i'm gonna move on and do this part and set a schedule mm -hmm. yeah i think this description like uh the paper is or the introduction is unclear poorly structured doesn't really sound like an academic paper and even the part about some sentence be sentences being plagiarized assuming that was like um you know uh an honest mistake or whatever like that sounds like you know very par for the course for an undergraduate trying to write a scientific mm -hmm. paper i mean likely it's the first time they've ever tried this so they don't yeah um and also to the 10 months is also very par for yeah. the course for a yeah, graduate sure. student in the first couple of years so even though it shouldn't be necessarily but it's not to me that didn't strike me as like wow 10 months right yeah I feel, the same. I, I feel like the I mean, there, there's there's two goals that are different. One is to provide a training and learning experience right. for a student, and the other is to get a scientific product out. And and oftentimes those things are aligned, and so we're we're able to do both at the same time. And so I guess one question, <clears throat> you know, one question to ask is just whether, and it's not a yes no question; it's a continuum, right? But how aligned are those things, right? So so, and this is something maybe the 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 letter writer might want to discuss with the senior author if, if they feel like that would be helpful is, is you know there there are times when it's okay to accept something going more slowly or requiring that additional extra work of providing feedback in order to provide a learning experience for someone and and there's a point at which that's not reasonable anymore and that that might be a thing to bring the senior author in on i would also say just like it's okay to ask for mentoring on being a mentor and so if the you know mm -hmm. it sounds like the 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 professor in this lab isn't the one directly providing the feedback because they're very busy and this and it can be a good learning experience for the graduate student to be providing feedback and that kind of thing so that's all great but like if you feel like your your advisor would would be helpful in this regard I think this is, you know, if the advisor knows the student, they definitely, hopefully, should know at least something about the project. Um, I've I've had this kind of relationship with, you know, within my lab too, where sometimes like a graduate student is the one directly working with a student on something, and then I'm advising on advising, and and you know that, and 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 the the professor can look at the situation and say okay this is something like I can coach you to how to deal with this or this is actually fine this is normal or they can say like I I the professor ought to step in at this point because I think some of some of these things you know the the if if the undergraduate has an expectation maybe not based on explicit discussion but on assumption or whatever has an expectation that they're going to be first author they may kind of need a reality check from a third party to say like, hey, look, I really appreciate all the work you've done on this, but, you know, there's a lot to learn. You're, you're writing, you know, you're, you're on the road, but you're not there yet. And this project, in order for it to actually be a publishable project, you know, we need to hand it to someone with more experience and, and keep you on. And, you know, so, and sometimes it's easier 
for that to come from someone more senior um, and and also if if that person is handing it from the undergraduate to the graduate it doesn't look as self-interested if it's coming from them than if the grad student is the one going to the undergrad saying I'm going to take first authorship on this so those are those are just kind of a, a few I don't know a few yeah. ideas I guess right yeah it seems like I mean yeah I like Samin's idea of everybody getting together and sort of like discussing what um what each person's contribution will be because I could imagine different situations, right? I could imagine that like the decision that gets made is that the grad student, the person who wrote the letter um, should take the lead, in which case, you know, it seems like an opportunity to A, move the paper forward and be the lead author on a publication, but also maybe spend some time mentoring the undergraduate on this project. And then I can also imagine a scenario where the grad student ends up being not first author or later author and then they can sort of like it can be clear that they can step back from the project a bit and they don't have to be the one who's pushing it forward or doing all of the like editing and things like that um which probably either one of those things has advantages and disadvantages but it would be nice to know which one you were in rather than straddling the two yeah and i mean for the for the graduate student like I think it's fair to to ask questions about how much they are getting out of this, right, you know. Yeah. And so, the experience, yeah, the experience of mentoring someone can be really valuable, and you can learn. And and you know, sooner or later in your career, if you stay in academia, or even if you go into other fields, you're going to have to deal with like working with people, giving sort of feedback to people who are kind of struggling with things, um, and sort of mentoring students through that process. And so, so, you know, there can be value in that, but also like it, it is fine to say at some point, like the, the amount of time and energy it's going to take for me to put into this is, is not going to be proportional to what I'm going to get out of this, or it's going to be, you know, I'm worried it's going to be futile. And this is, this person is not, you know, by the time they're graduated and gone, they're not going to have gotten this to the point. And, and I think it's okay I know some people can might be prone to feel a little guilty about sort of stepping in and taking over like that, but if if that's where the letter writer is coming from, I think, and that's a good place to get a reality check from your advisor to say like, is it okay if I just kind of step in and say I'm taking over, or or to sort of work through with someone more experienced of how to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it also depends like how much else the um, grad student has going on and how much more they would rather be working on those other things or how much better aligned with their interests as other things are. So if this is like really up the grad student's alley and they're really interested in it, then I think, you know, asking to take the lead and, and asking for consensus from the other authors is good. But if it's like actually they're doing this as a favor and they don't really want this to be their main project and so on, then I think saying, look, you know, there seems to be that no one's taking the lead here. Do we really want to keep working on this project? Is there someone who is willing to step up and, and shepherd this through the finish line and so on? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's, it, it, you know, some, right, yeah, sometimes some projects, because of priorities or other reasons, just end up kind of, you say, I'm going to put this on the back burner, and it's not going to go anywhere until we figure it out. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that's kind of, I, yeah, I think that's a really good point, Samin. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, Anonymous, uh, for your letter. I hope we've been helpful. Um, to our listeners, if you are listening and you have a letter you'd like us to read and respond to, you can reach us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, that's also just a way to get in touch with us about anything else, with feedback, ideas, etc. 
Um, you can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at BlackOatPod. We're on Instagram, Instagram.com slash BlackOatPod. We're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash BlackOatPod. And we are on the web, www.TheBlackOatPodcast.com. You can listen to us through iTunes and Stitcher and other ways. And if you are so inclined to rate us, that helps people find the podcast um, and find out about us. So, yeah. So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about teaching statistics and under and methods to undergraduates specifically, and, and both in the context of specifically like research methods courses and statistics courses and how to use sort of you know, what should a, an undergraduate curriculum look like? And then also when and how and where do you bring those concepts into other courses, whether it's an introductory psychology course, whether it's an advanced psychology course. And I think kind of the, the um, some of the motivation for doing this was a comment that Samin threw out there a couple of episodes back, I think, uh, that, that kind of took me by surprise because I hadn't heard you say it before, Samin, about sort of asking about uh, uh, sort of how and how much we should be teaching stats but i don't want to try to to sort of re restate it in my own words so samin do you want to kind of uh maybe to kick us off sort of tell us tell us more about that yeah so i think what i said was something like i think we should be teaching a lot less stats than we currently do just like majors and generally i think my attitude is i'm just much more of a pragmatist than an idealist about it so like ideally yes like if you have a bachelor's in psych you should know what a t-test is what an ANOVA is what a chi-squared test is um interaction effects all of that but I guess this is also a theme in like my views about you know justify your alpha versus redefine significance and all that I just like I just don't think the ideal can happen and so then I become resigned to like okay well I think the perfect is the enemy of the good I think when we try to cram all of this stuff in we do a worse job than we did if we like I think students would get more out of us trying to teach less and and also from seeing you know the papers I see when I'm editing which are people who have more than bachelors in psych I think all in the vast vast majority of cases and seeing that many of us including me lack training or or, or retention of pretty basic mm-hmm. things that I teach in my undergraduate methods class um, like I mean one example is like how people make up ad hoc measures all the time. We teach in undergraduate methods that if you want to measure something, you have to validate your measure of it. Um, And I think that should go for manipulations too, but that's a whole nother subject. Um, (laughs) But so, so I think how often I see the basics not be followed and whether that's like a lack of training or just that we forget or something, I really think like, making you know 95 percent of the curriculum and methods and stats things that you absolutely need to know and cutting out most of the stuff it's like ideally we would want our students to know this but um yeah i just think like even the really really fundamentals that we'd be super lucky if the students managed to grasp those things and retained some of them beyond the time of the course so I'm, i'm more and more cynical about what's realistic to even get them to understand in the first place much less retain like forget about retention but even just getting them to understand in the time you have them in your class i think we're trying to cram way too much in Mm -hmm. so what i I guess it's a really interesting idea i'm i'm still i'm having a little bit of trouble wrapping my head around what exactly that means like what what would you keep or what how would you decide what to keep and and yeah what do you see as essential and how would you go about teaching it 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, I haven't thought this through. So, like, we'll be thinking about it together and, you know, your opinions are as good as mine or better. Um, but, I mean, I'm biased. I teach research methods and not statistics. I think research methods is more fundamental. I think more mm-hmm. people, like people who are not going to go on to be researchers, so the vast majority of psych majors at UC Davis are not going to go on to do social science research themselves, but many, many more of them will rely on social science research. I mean, all of us do to some extent, right? Like yeah. all adults in our society need to make some decisions where social science is relevant. So I think the concepts taught in research methods, which is basically just critical thinking, but specific mm-hmm. ways of critical thinking to evaluate social science research, I think that's way more useful in life if you're not going to go on to be a researcher than learning what a chi-squared test is or an ANOVA or things like that. I do think there's some concepts from statistics that are important to learn. So like the idea of, of error rates or yeah. maybe the idea of Bayesian thinking or you know how to think about inferences, how to think about errors, how to think about updating your beliefs and and statistical errors so statistical validity the concept of statistical validity i think is really important but the specific statistical tests i don't know i mean i guess i would want them to understand data visualization so that they could see when a graph is like misrepresenting results and things like that so -hmm. that requires some understanding of like means versus medians and outliers and some more statistical concepts but i'm not sure they need to learn the formula for a t-test even or a correlation or I don't know. I mean, again, that would be, it would be ideal. And maybe ideal is even too strong a word. It would be good. <laughs> like it would be, it sh- I understand why people might balk at the idea of not teaching someone who comes out with a psych degree, that kind of information. But I just not sure it's realistic for most psych majors. The other way to go would be to restrict the psych major to people who want a real like heavy on science, heavy on math education but that we'd lose the vast majority of our majors and maybe that'd be okay too but that's a different world yeah i'm i'm what i'm trying to figure out is how much this is about what should we be teaching or is it really about how we should be teaching because the the way you're talking about stats is it reminds me of this sort of old-fashioned i mean old-fashioned but still unfortunately quite prominent way of of teaching stats as just kind of like a bag of tricks, mm-hmm. a toolbox mm-hmm. of disconnected tests. Um, and I do think there are, I, I, I have issues with that particular way of, of teaching statistics, but I think there are ways of teaching statistics, some of which include you end up teaching those kinds of things, but in a different way where you, you teach statistics as a way of creating a model of how your data was generated and of drawing inferences from the data in the model. And, you know, the, the more sort of, uh, in, in my experience, like I went through grad stats twice, uh, once with a more traditional toolbox approach and once with a more kind of modeling based approach and the, the ended up learning, like, how do you analyze a two by two ANOVA, but in completely different ways. And, and, I think the second way, the modeling way for me was much richer and closer to critical thinking. Um, and so that's part of it. And, and part of it is, and this is where I struggle too, because I, I taught research methods for the first time this term. And I tried to teach them concepts like what is a p-value, which I think I did that, I think, based on how the lecture went, but also on how students did on the exam. I think I did an okay job with because I spent a whole lecture on it. But it, you sort of run into this limit of like, I can only tell you so much before I have to teach you some math. And um, in order for you to, so, so like I could give you one level of it and, and it, it, you'll be 
hopefully better mm-hmm. off with what you learned than if you didn't have it at all in your future if you read an article or whatever that involves key values but but like I think even the conceptual critical thinking part of it like you need to do some math to sort of right. see what's going on there yeah and then when I tried to cover like what's an effect size I felt really like it's really easy to say look at the effect size look at the effect size but but again it's like until you know I felt like I, I was and, and I should say, our research methods class is before our statistics class, so the vast majority of students in my class had not had statistics yet. Um, and so, and I, I just felt really limited in, or when I wanted to talk about reliability, and then the textbook has a little section on Cronbach's alpha, but I didn't spend a lot of time on that, and I, I feel like the students, as a result of that, and, and so anyway, so, so, you know, to some extent, like, formalizations, math, are... If you're what you're doing is you're teaching them like here's some formula and some hand calculation and whatever you get this number and whatever that's one thing but if you're teaching it as a way of like what what a different way of thinking about formalization and this certainly comes up in formal theory is you're taking your ideas and then you're putting them in a form that it makes things explicit and that somebody else can look at it and they can see exactly the same thing you can and it's a it's mm-hmm. a a part of critical thinking is formalizing thinking into models and into tests and distributions and whatever and mapping between those and your conceptual understanding. So I think that is really hard and I struggle with like whether I'm doing that well or not. But that's more to me about like how we teach statistics and methods than like should we be teaching less stats or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. So when, Samin, when you first said like, yeah, maybe we should focus more on like the or yeah now i'm not sure if i'm gonna quote you correctly but more on like abstract concepts and research methods and things like that and stay away from formulas my first reaction was like yeah let's get rid of formulas like nobody remembers those formulas anyways or at least i don't remember those formulas (laughs) um but actually like as you were talking sanjay i think i do think that there is a way where sometimes the math does help conceptually right so i don't know for instance like with the concept of variance it might actually be useful to understanding what that concept is to think about like how you would actually calculate it um and what might be sort of like a more mysterious concept it might become more concrete if you sort of practice like actually calculating it um and that actually made me think of like a thought that i had when you were talking samin about basically like what the goals of teaching statistics are and i think if the goal is if, if we're thinking about like, what are people realistically going to be able to use when they leave university, I agree the vast majority of psych majors are not going to ever use the formula for a t-test, but there might be something about the process of learning that, absolutely. that is useful. Right? Of course, like, in a perfect world, yes, absolutely, it would be useful to learn it. I'm just... But, right, but like, not necessarily to... To learn the fact. No, I know. The process of learning it. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think, I just, my experience teaching research methods, which uh, because one quarter is only 10 weeks, but even if it was 15 weeks, is that there's no way I can teach everything in that textbook. And it's a great textbook. So you think there are things that are more important to teach? Yeah. I just think if we try to cover all of the things that people would benefit from having the experience of trying to learn those things, we can't. We just can't. And so if we have to cut Mm -hmm. something, I would rather cut. I, I totally agree that, of course, if we had unlimited time people would benefit from learning more of the math behind things learning more of Mm -hmm. learning more things you know right 
I and I feel like I mean th- this gets into larger curricular issues, right? Because Samin, you mentioned you only have ten weeks. I only have ten weeks because um, we're in quarters too, and and so the textbook that I use, I tried to cover the whole textbook this term, and I ended up cutting some stuff. And it's like, I sort of at one point a little bell went off in my head, and it was like, oh yeah, textbooks are written for semesters. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> you're not. Mm-hmm. Supposed but to even be able in to cover a semester, in a I don't know how we cover. Even all yeah. Of it. yeah. But but so so I, I agree that like within the confines of one class and I, I made a bunch of notes when I was done and a lot of my notes were like cut this cut this like don't mm-hmm. do this yeah. so you can spend more time on that etc. But it, you know there you can also step back and look at a larger curriculum and say like you know we could my department could decide we're going to require you know more terms of statistics or methods yeah. or or what have you um yeah i'd be for we that could decide <laughs> yeah we could, we could decide that we're gonna i mean this is i saw this proposal a number of years back sort of floated somewhere and i, I never really saw if anyone kind of followed up on it but the idea of and this was sort of generally in science curricula but someone was talking about it in psychology is of making sort of how you do research which is essentially methods and stats, making that the introductory part of the field. So right now, intro to psychology, which I also teach, um, is like, it's sort of like greatest hits of cool things you want to know about psychology. Yeah. And sometimes it feels sort of like marketing for a psychology major. I mean, I try to make it, obviously, that's that's pretty flippant. I try to make it more substantive than that. But like the idea that the, the I'm going to, we're going to start by teaching you these interesting facts about the human mind. And then later, if you, like the advanced thing that you do, if you want to study this in depth, is to learn, you know, how we get those facts. And instead, if you flip that around, if you flip the script and you made it longer and more intensive and you said what psychology is, is it's it's a way of learning about the human mind. And so we're going to start by teaching you the tools. And in fact, the specific findings that you might learn in intro to psych class, those might change at some point. But we're gonna we're gonna teach you sort of like the process of critical thinking, and of how do you think about cause and effect, and how do you think about measurement and all these other things. And then we'll get to like what can you do with that. I'm not sure that that's the greatest idea, but I do think that the sort of like centering the how rather than the what is, or at least changing the proportions of them from what's typical in most programs, which I think in most programs right now, like it's one term of statistics, one term of methods, usually fairly early on. And it's this like distasteful thing that students feel like they have to get through before they get to the fun stuff Mm -hmm. later on. Yeah. I think the economics of that would be complicated because right now, like we're the biggest major on campus. And if we said, instead of having to take one of each of those, you had to take two of each of those or something like that, we would no longer be the biggest major on campus. But that, yeah. I think that's still the right thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, the economics are really interesting because we've, we've had discussions about that. We, we actually, we changed our major a few years back. And so now we have, it used to be stats, one, one term of stats, one term of methods. Now it's one term of a, this general methods, one term of stats, and then a kind of second methods that's really more of a lab course where students work on a project. Um, so the idea is to get them actual hands-on experience running a study um and and some of the discussion was around like well will this reduce the number of majors and then some of it was like is that a problem Mm -hmm. or is that okay like are we you know and it you you get into these like arcane discussions about the university budget model and all Mm -hmm. this other stuff um that that you know you realize like there are all these practical constraints um but you know i i also i think like 
But I do think about that in the context of students that are going to go on and not be researchers. They're going to be, their relationship to psychology research is going to be probably as a consumer. Um, But saying like, what's the value for them of having had the experience, even if it's a toy problem in a lab class, like having had the experience of actually gone through and seeing how up close, how is this knowledge produced? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like some are not going to retain anything about it and some are going to retain selectively and whatever. But, um, you know, I wonder sometimes like, like, I think we both because of the prominence of like standardized testing in the world and then also because as psychologists we want to measure everything and i do sometimes when i'm like designing a course i think about like what's the value of simply having had this experience um over and above like some specific factoid that i could test you on you know i think about that with like taking part in experiments as an undergraduate um which people are i think appropriately skeptical of like making students you know participate in experiments I think we should be cautious about that because of all the incentives but I also think like having actually had the experience of being a subject in an experiment for me it fundamentally changed how I thought about psychology research when I encountered it like just having seen warts and all the the particulars and it's not these like grandiose abstractions it's like you're sitting in a lab at this beat up old computer pressing keys for 45 minutes and that's where this theory comes from like it really changes it um, yeah. and, and so a, also having had the experience of being, a, a doing some amount of data analysis yeah. and running, running. I mean, this raises a problem, which is that there's some training that if you are going to go on and do research in social science, you do need it. And so I think in a way we need different, a different like path for people who want the kind of degree that then prepares them for grad school in social sciences. But I, but do we really need to make all like. 1,000 majors per year do all of the things that you would want someone to have to be trained to start graduate school? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how many of these skills people do end up using. Like, a lot of people work with data in some yeah, kind yeah. way. Yeah, I actually think maybe the answer is yes, yeah. but then it becomes a very different major, right? And I actually think yeah. I think there's a kind of major I would love, a kind of department I would love to be in that's like kind of substance agnostic. And maybe data science is this, like we have a new data science, I think it's a major, um, where it's mostly just methods and stats. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a cool thing to major. And I think you'd be very employable at the end of a major that was like 80% substance agnostic and Mm -hmm. more about maybe maybe like social science-y, but not specifically learning about effects in in specific sciences i think there's also just a larger question of like how much i think the answer is neither zero 100 percent. so it's like where in the middle but like how much should we be caring about what students are going to go on and do Mm -hmm. like i think at one extreme you know you you can fall into thinking of you know college degrees as vocational training and at another extreme, you can fall into thinking of them as just like la-di-da, abstract ivory, college, ivory tower knowledge. And, and I think it's like, obviously, it's another extreme. So like, where in the middle, like, it, how okay is it to be teaching them things that they aren't going to be using directly, but that like, the, the point of being a psychology major is to learn psychology to some extent as yeah. a worthy topic to as a thing that people ought to know about yeah. and that includes how it gets done and that's it i mean this is something that i haven't really thought about before is like what what are people's expectations when they sign up for a psychology major like are they are they expecting or wanting to be 
to learn how to be a psychologist or are they expecting to have expertise in the area of psychology? And those two versions of a major would look, I think, really different. Um, I don't know how much that's a unique concern to psychology either. Like, I think that's, I think most majors would be taught differently if you were training people for grad school versus trying to send them off with a, you know, a stamp of approval that you know more about this topic than I mean, other people do. I don't know about you guys, but when I was choosing a major, I was like, what could I tolerate studying for four years? Like, what's yeah. interesting <laughs> enough that I won't want to shoot myself in the head? That is um, exactly what my thought process was, too. Well, Alexa, I was I was curious, because you, you've mentioned on the podcast before, I, I know that you teach psychology in a prison, mm-hmm. and you're, I'm assuming your students have very different thoughts about what what am I going to do with this in the future than than your undergraduate students? I just like, jump how... straight to the formulas for t tests. <laughs> yeah, like how do you how do you think about you know? And I realize like I don't know if you're teaching methods and stats or, or other things, but like just the the more general issue of like how do you think about what is important to teach them? What are your students given that they're coming from a very different set of motivations than, than an average undergraduate, or maybe they're not, I shouldn't, I actually shouldn't assume, but, but yeah, like, how do you, how, how have you thought about these issues in that context? Uh, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, one way to answer it would be like sort of the boring answer of, I try to consider, um, what they would need to know to be better consumers of science, but it's a little different than that. I think, um, I think it's like, I try to focus on what if they were more interested in learning about the world empirically, what are like some steps that they could take in that direction. So not just like partly, yes, like if you were to listen to the news and you heard this fact reported, could you be a little bit more critical of it? You know, like, could you question maybe, maybe if you're like hearing somebody report on a psych study, could you be critical about like how they measured what they said they were measuring if they even give you that much information you know um or things like you know like thinking about correlations and things like that um but also just like thinking more about like learning about the world through observation so you know just the simple idea that like one observation isn't necessarily going to generalize and we do like a sort of like a sampling error exercise where um i like divide the class into like dark-haired and light-haired people and ask them if they would want to be able to read people's minds or not and then you know we talk about the proportion of um each like dark-haired and light-haired group and i ask them like okay are now are you now convinced that like this group wants to learn about or wants to read people's minds more than this other group and you know, every time I do that demonstration, they understand on some level why that that's like not enough information to draw conclusions about dark haired and light haired people and stuff like that. So just to sort of like, I guess, just basic principles that would not only apply to you, like the way that you consume scientific information, but maybe just like the way that you operate on a daily basis so like one person telling you about their experience doesn't generally like doesn't necessarily generalize to other people and you know if you have a small number of observations like maybe that's not going to it's going to be misleading to just rely on that um you know maybe you can observe your own behavior in some ways and so like learn about yourself in that way um 
I don't know. I'm coming up with a lot of this now, and I'm not sure that I necessarily (laughs) used all of this as, like, a guiding principle when I designed my class. I mean, a lot of that sounds like it's about the process. I'm curious what you guys think about whether the findings of psych are useful. So besides the experience of learning about them and the, like, liberal arts education, blah, 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 playing with ideas, but, like, actually, let's say they memorize and retain findings from psychology. How useful is that? in most careers besides being a social scientist researcher like if you're going to be a nurse or you're going to be a teacher you're going to be i don't know go into marketing or whatever like are the are the things in the textbooks that you learn as a psych major not the process but the the findings themselves useful uh, I mean, I don't know how anybody gets through the world without understanding that there are five dimensions <laughs> of no like i I think the the I, I'm. I think this. I mean, I, I introduced this distinction, so I sort of take blame for it a little bit. I, I think the distinction between content and the how and the what is, in some ways, like. So what I want them to know when I teach intro to psych, for example, like there are things that I want them to remember. I want them to to you know to understand that like people like mental illness can be helped through psychotherapy and yeah. I want them to understand like there are some important I want them to know I mean, I'm thinking about just because that's where my mind went initially like the the last couple lectures I do on mental health I want them to know like the difference between insanity in the legal system and mental illness right there are certain yeah. things that I've decided that I want them to know um uh, some of them are, you know, the, the, the insanity thing is more of a sort of legal concept, sort of con- human social construction issue. Some of them are, are more, I mean, everything's a social construction, but you know what I mean? Um, uh, some of them are more uh, uh, empirical findings or theories. Um, in personality psychology, I want them to know that like people have stable individual differences and that how you are isn't going to be totally different tomorrow, but that there's variability and flexibility mm-hmm. and that, you know, um, and that there's growth and people change or can change. Like, so yeah. there are these things that I, I, I think, do want yeah. them to know. And then I also there's want them to know how we got there, because if we if that knowledge changes in the future, I don't want them like in, in my ideal world. And I don't kid myself that it everybody or even most people are going to walk away with this mindset but i want them to remember both what it is and a little bit about how we got there and a little and have some appreciation that as important as these things are for guiding your life that they're contingent on how they were discovered and produced and that i want them to have some awareness of how that contingency works so that if mm-hmm. because i know that even among the things that i would say are rock solid as rock solid as they can get i know that base rates some proportion of those are going to change um and so i I don't want them walking away believing those are set in stone and i try to communicate that i I, it's a very difficult thing to communicate and i'm not sure i'm the best at doing that right yeah i think there's enough like content things that i want people to take from 101 like all the things that you mentioned sanjay agree with um I want them to be or sort of I, like critical of their own yeah. prejudices and biases, you mm-hmm. know? So like, I think that's something that many times my undergrads have like not considered that before. Um, and then also the power of social influence as a social psychologist, I feel like, um, you know, I, I really like teaching them about those like early social influence studies. Um, I start my class, my one-on-one class each year telling them that I want 
them to take away two things from the class and now I'm like am I gonna remember exactly what the two <laughs> things are um but it's something it's something like you don't see the world the way that it truly is and there are things that you don't know about yourself those two things and then I give them like mm-hmm. throughout the class I like return to those ideas I'm not sure those are the best ones they were the ones that like I thought of when you know when I decided that I would do that mm-hmm. um but yeah those are like those are contenty things I think mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I, I would I mean in, in yeah and I, I I try to teach I mean, it's so tough an intro because there's so much to cover so fast. But like, I try to I try to talk about the evidence for things so that they develop a habit of seeing things not as disconnected facts, but as as having come from somewhere. So that when the countervailing thing comes along, it, I I also think it just makes the knowledge more robust, right? So when I think about like I cover attachment and I talk about how important it is for for babies to form attachments with caregivers and how important that relationship is for children and i you know i think about policy applications like the family separation policy and our government being so callous about separating children from caregivers and if they not only understand what i've taught them but have some appreciation for that this comes from logic and evidence and have some appreciation that then when they encounter these alternative ideas, like it's fine, the kids are just whatever, um, that they'll they'll be able to look at those two competing messages and not just have them cancel each other out or not know what to do with that. So that's why like attaching the how to the what mm-hmm. feels important. Mm-hmm. Like if if they just came away and they're like, well, my professor ten years ago said this one thing, mm-hmm. but like these people in my social media sphere are saying this other thing and you know, and they're more proximal and vivid to me and they're people I trust. So I'm going to believe them rather than Sanjay, that dude from 10 years ago or whatever. Um, and so that's, that's where like, and maybe the larger con that also just the larger context of like making sure that methods and stats are part of our curriculum is important. So when they do get the content, they just have this larger sense of the process Mm -hmm. that produced all of it. Yeah. I think focusing, I mean, I wish that I focused more on the process. I probably should focus more on the process. Um, But I think that's super important because I think that undergrads start out with the impression that you're going to tell them facts. And also that's part of their goal, right? Is to like learn the facts that they need to know to do well on tests and things like that. Um, And so like, I think you really have to like hammer them with uncertainty to get them to realize that like what you're yeah. telling them is not but just like a list of facts. The problem is when you do that in their first year or second year methods yeah, class, and then they go on to take the other classes and they start challenging their professor. <laughs> and like, oh. I've had <laughs> students come back to me and be like, well, I had an ex- like, I have an essay exam question and it asked me to like summarize this study, but the study is obviously like, they don't say P hacked, but they're like, there's this and this and this and also mm. this. And do you think that I'm supposed to point all these things out? And I'm like, I don't think that's the assignment. I think you're supposed <laughs> to take the finding at face value and then like write about the theoretical implications and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's always, but that's awesome. That means, yeah. that means you're, yeah, you're breaking through Samin mm-hmm. and, and they're going to pester your colleagues to, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it's funny that I, you know, when I, when I write exams, I, I never write exam questions as a disconnected fact like I'll never say like 
you know, how do people respond in situation X or whatever? Mm -hmm. It'll always be like, according to the theory of cognitive Mm -hmm. dissonance, how do people, and it's just like, it's such a habit for me to like, I, you know, everything is contingent. It's according to this theory, or if you, you know, based on this finding, what would you expect Mm -hmm. or whatever? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just, it feels wrong to teach it any Mm -hmm. other way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, Yeah. I feel like the the whole point of research methods is to take make the students a pain in the ass in the other classes. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's when you know you've succeeded. And it's actually interesting because even within research methods, they can be a pain in the ass, right? Like if they're really critically evaluating things and challenging things, they're going to challenge you too. And so often the students that some of my TAs like the least are the students that I love. I'm like, yes, come back to my office hours over and over again and tell me how I was technically wrong when I said this. And, you know, mm. I just love those students. Yeah, I had I had one student the first day of class of my research methods class. I asked students why they were there, and when, when and like students were you know whatever I'm here because I have to be whatever. Like I was doing show mm-hmm. hands, you know, are you are you here because you're a major? Are you blah blah blah. And I was like, are there any other reasons? And one student, I swear to God, one student shouted out the black goat, and I was uh, so hi <laughs> if you're listening, hello. I I loved that. Um, and, and, you know, this was a student who, who like, asked some of the best questions. I agree, like, probably uh, this is probably a student that uh, this is going to be one of the students you're talking yeah. about that, like, they're going to they're gonna make my colleagues miserable in ways that I will yeah, love. Uh. But, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, cool. Do you guys have other thoughts about research methods and stats? Not really. Are we done? Have we... <laughs> I feel like it's funny, like where I, I, you know, this is like my favorite topic. Yeah. <laughs> this is our favorite topic. Yeah. This is like. Yeah, I mean, I guess way. I would say one more thing. Like, I think it's it's hard to teach, and I have a lot of respect for people who teach statistics, especially because I couldn't. I'd have a hard time doing that. And and you, I, I think you get lower valuations, or maybe that's just rationalization. But I think that's subjectively true. But if you have the chance to do it, I think. It's so rewarding, and I would just put that plug in. Like, I used to teach personality, and then I switched to teaching research methods, and I enjoy teaching so much more now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I am I really enjoyed teaching it this last term. I feel like it was my first time teaching this course, and I, I gravitated towards it for very similar reasons. I kind of, with, you know, I, I feel like with all the changes that have been happening in the field, I kind of wanted to, to try to step up and, and sort of like take this course that's been around forever and kind of make it my own because I'm so passionate about it. And, and hopefully it's going to get better the next time around. But uh, I yeah, I found it like a lot of fun and, and super rewarding. Yeah, it's fun to teach um, a class with no right answers, but it's also very hard to teach a class with 400 students and no right answers. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah I, like I can it. imagine. Cool. Well, I, I think we're, are we done? Yeah. Are we good? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, thank you listeners for listening to the Black Goat and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.